beloved, uh, it's such a privilege to be with you today. Um, I'm just going to say a short prayer and then we'll kind of get into our sermon for today. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I need you. Um, we all need you. Um, you so desire to be in communion with us. And as the beautiful song that was sung, when, when we praise, you draw yourself close to us, Lord. And so I pray that you'll do that right now here. Give us just a bite of you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So today's topic is God's pursuit of man, or really simply put, God's friendship. Now, I know that sounds super basic, but actually it's really, really profound. What we're going to do today is we're going to track this theme of God's friendship from the Old Testament, New Testament, up until the end of time. We'll see how this concept of God's friendship is crucial to us making it at the end of time and being ready for Jesus' coming. So as a child, about 10 years old, um, my little cousin was born. And when I looked at her, I started to wonder why people had kids. I looked at her and I think she cries all the time. You have to change her nappies all the time. She's time consuming. She looks really expensive. Don't worry, we're friends now. Um, but what I've learned as I've gotten older is that, of course, kids are cute. They're definitely worth the hassle. But thinking like that as a child then got me onto thinking, why does God create? Why did God create us? If you think about it, before he created us, he already, he already had a retinue of angels who constantly adored him. He had countless other intelligent beings who couldn't get enough of him. And of course, he had animals uh, to keep him company if he wanted. And of course, ultimately, he had the Trinity. There was God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Why would God create humanity? Why us? And over time, I've realized that they're both the same question. Why does God create human beings? And why do people have children? When you get to a certain point in your relationship as a couple, and of course, as God, we're talking about the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, you have so much love to give away that you just have so much love inside of you that you just want to give it away. You're itching to pour into something. And of course, we know that God doesn't just have love. He is love. And so he continues to pour himself out and create and recreate because that is the very nature of love. He wanted more people to pour out his love to. And so we find that God creates for company. He creates for friendship. How do we know that God creates for friendship? Well, the Sabbath day doctrine is a fantastic example showing us that God creates for company and for friendship. So in the story of creation, we see that God has a particular mode of working. He creates a space and then he fills that space. So he creates the skies or the firmament and then he fills it with the sun, moon, stars and birds. He creates the oceans and then he pours and fills it with sea creatures and fish. Then he creates land and he fills it with plants, vegetation, trees, and of course, animals. Then on Sabbath, there's a plot twist. He does something similar, but also different. 
And we find this in Genesis chapter two, verse two. There, the word says that God blessed the seventh day and then sanctified it. So the Sabbath is the climax of creation. What, does, what God does is he creates a vacuum, a space, the 24 hours that make up the seventh day. And then he fills it with himself. He makes it holy. He injects the space, those 24 hours, with his very own presence. And so this space, by virtue of being it being filled with God, becomes holy because God is of that day and has poured himself into that day. And so we see that the Sabbath is God's stake in human time. It's a forced pause. And he has poured himself into this day so that the day becomes a gift of himself, his time to us, friendship. If we say that the climax of salvation is God giving himself for us on the cross, we can say that the climax of creation is God giving himself to us through the blessing of the Sabbath day. And so from the Sabbath, we see that the beginnings of humanity were brought about because God wanted company. He wanted friendship. God wanted us. That's something that's not that cool nowadays. Nearly every teen movie that you have has the same theme or plot of the unpopular or uncool student trying really hard to break the glass ceiling of popularity and to fit into the pretty and popular group. And from those movies, we sense that in our society, people look down on the desire, strong of pe on people who strongly desire friendship from certain people. We look at them and, and we name them wannabes. We name them big friends. There's almost an uncoolness in wanting people. We look down on this level of vulnerability because we think it makes us look despairing. It's not slick to look eager. In fact, our generation has mastered the art of looking like we don't care. And yet God, the grand God of the universe is the total opposite. He's not ashamed of wanting our company and our friendship. In fact, in Hebrews chapter two, verse 11, the word says that he's not ashamed to call us brethren. God looks eagerly for our friendship. He wants to be wanted by us. And actually there are countless stories and parables in the Bible that demonstrate this. Let's look at a few of them really briefly. So we see it first in the Garden of Eden after sin has entered into the world. Because of their sin, Adam and Eve have now put their creator on death row. Of course, Christ has put himself death row on death row voluntarily, but still because of their actions, he's on death row. He will have to die for their sins, or at least he chooses to. And yet you see him, Jesus, approaching Adam and Eve in their sin. The Bible says he breezes, is, he breezes in and it says that he comes to them in the cool of the day, calmness, composure. He's not looking to accuse them. And still in the face of the betrayal of Adam and Eve, God looks at them and he still desires their friendship as broken and as corrupt 
as they are. And that's the same with us. He's looking for us in the same way. Skip over later into the Old Testament where you see God and his people, the Israelites. They are a nomadic people, so they move from place to place to place, never settling until they get into the promised land. And as they do that, God wants to give them a token of his own presence. And so he says, let them build me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. That's Exodus 25 verse, verse 8. How do we convert that? God essentially here is saying, listen, I want to be with you guys wherever you go. He was itching to be with Israel. Third example, moving over to the New Testament, we see the same thing of God continually pursuing and thirsting for a friendship with humanity. The gospel accounts never see Jesus rushing. Have you noted that? This is somebody who is constantly busy. He can create food from nowhere. He can heal anybody. He speaks the very oracles of God. Jesus is busy. And yet we never see him in the gospel accounts running or rushing. Actually, the only place that I know in the whole Bible where you see God running and rushing is in Luke chapter 15, verse 20. And this is the story of the prodigal son. You see the father here, of course, who represents God, running and rushing to meet his fallen son. He's eager and he's disregarding the dignity of those days where men didn't run, older men didn't run. He is desperate for his son's friendship. And of course, we see even in the name of Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. Here, God literally, in order to be with us, he literally clothes himself in flesh and he follows us in our sufferings just so that he can be with us. This looks like a God who values friendship. One of my favorite books is um, The Desire of Ages. And in page 191, it says this, our redeemer thirsts for recognition. He hungers for the sympathy and the love of those with whom he has purchased with his own blood. He longs with inexpressible desire that they should come to him and have life. As the mother watches for the smile of recognition from her little child, which tells of the dawning intelligence, so does Christ watch for the expression of grateful love. God, eternal, untouchable, immovable, immutable, ever living, ever light, looks at us, at you, at me, and he thirsts for our friendship. That's pretty intense. When I was at primary school, about eight years old, I had two best friends. And together we formed the Three Musketeers. Now there was one winter morning when one of these best friends was taken ill and put inside with the nurse in a classroom. She was told to stay inside at playtime. Now the school policy at that time was that children weren't allowed indoors, so you had to be outside. And so my best, my other best friend and I thought this isn't right. The two musketeers, like this isn't complete with, without her. We need to find a way to be with her. So we refused 
to spend lunchtime without her. We were just, we thought this is, this is not possible, okay? So we sat down and we hatched a plan. We thought, how, how can we get inside? First, we thought about picking a fight with somebody so that we were sent inside. Obviously, I don't condone this. I was unconverted. Um, but we thought, ah, oh, that's a bit too much trouble. Then we thought, okay, maybe we can fake ill and say we have a headache. You say you have a stomach ache. Done. But then we thought, ah, they would catch wind of that. Then we decided on one final thing. We would fake injury so that we had to be sent in with a school nurse. And so we started roughing ourselves up, trying to graze ourselves on the wall, throwing each other around, just so that we could have a tiny bit of injury so that we could fake it and go inside and be with our other best friend. Just as we started, the bell rang for maths. <laughs> but I tell that really silly, silly story. But the point of this is me and my other best friend were willing to do whatever it took to fake looking silly, to fake injury, to hurt ourselves, to be united with our friend. Now that is a very silly tale, but from the story of salvation, we see that actually God is willing to do a similar thing for our friendship. In the same way that eight-year-old me was willing to risk getting hurt and in trouble to be with our friend, God has gone above and beyond to do the same for us. His desire is written out in John chapter 17, verse 24, which says, where Jesus prays, Father, I desire that they also whom you have gave me be with me where I am. Jesus longs to be with us. That's his desire. And so we see again and again in scripture that God doesn't just love you or love humanity. He actually likes us because that's what friendship takes. Friendship means that you have to like the other person. And if God is pursuing us like this, he actually likes us. Because let's be real, you can love somebody and not like them. It's the truth. The Bible tells us to love our enemies. It is a command to love our enemies. It does not tell us to like our enemies. Loving is commanded, liking, is optional. But God's out here saying, you, you're a hot mess, but I don't only love you, I actually like you. I actually want to spend time with you. I want your friendship. Just like eight-year-old me, Jesus was willing to go above and beyond for friendship. In fact, he was willing to even die for it. And the irony is that the people whose friendships Jesus was seeking to obtain are the exact ones that killed him. In Zechariah chapter 13, verse six, the Bible says that, the, it says that God says that he's wounded in the house of his friends, not wounded in the house of his enemies, wounded by his friends. And the second irony of God's pursuit of man is that as soon as Jesus was arrested and put on a cross, his followers figuratively hit the unfollow button. It was the ultimate betrayal. Some theologians put it this way. Ultimately, it was the rejection from his friends and from his father that broke Jesus's heart. 
the sins of the world suffocated him on a soul level and he experienced the second death. He was killed in the pursuit of friendship. <sighs> That's a lot. How much are you willing to sacrifice for friendship? In his pursuit for yours, Jesus was mortally wounded. And what I'm really saying here is that Jesus didn't even die for the guarantee of your friendship. He died for the possibility of it. The truth is, he got on that cross and he made all of these sacrifices just for a chance to be your friend. Not even the guarantee that he would be your friend. Because, of course, it depends on you. If you don't want to be his friend, then he can't be. After his death and betrayal, how does Jesus view this tremendous sacrifice? Hebrews chapter 53 verse 11 says that he shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. What does that mean? It means that Jesus looks upon his anguish, upon his sacrifice, on his labor to win our friendship and thinks, worth it. I mean, I think it's really clear from all these examples I've given. God is committed and gung-ho when it comes to his friendship with us and his relationship to us. Ellen G. White says in TMK, that I may know him, I think that, that is that book, um, page 234, she says, we are never alone. We have a companion, whether we choose him or not. Even if you don't want him, he wants you. Whether we choose him or not, he wants us. He's seeking us. In fact, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13 says that even if you become faithless in your friendship with God, he will remain faithful to you. And so to summarize so far, we're seeing that friendship is incredibly important to God that he firsts to be recognized by us so much that he's willing to die just to be friends with us. Now, going on to the next phase of this message, we see that we have to respond to this. It brings us to our response to his pursuit of our friendship. At the end of time, the Sabbath will be the test of our friendship with God. Let me explain. So the Sabbath, just like the rest of the law, at its core is about relationship. That's why Jesus summarizes the law as love God and love man. It's about relationship. And because God and his law are all about relationship, God decides to deal with us human beings with covenants. A covenant is a promise or a contract between two people or two partners. It's a, it's a partnership. You don't make a covenant to somebody who you're not in relationship to. And so a covenant is some kind of bond. So with a covenant, God keeps his side of the promise, his side of the bargain, and humanity have to keep their side of the bargain. And of course, the most common covenant we all know is marriage where two people come together and they're faithfully exclusive and loving to each other. It's a covenant, it's a bond, it's a contract. And it turns out that the Sabbath is also 
a type of covenant between God and humanity. How do we know that? Well, in Exodus chapter 31, verse 13, the Bible tells, that, tells us that the Sabbath is a sign between God and humanity that he sanctifies us. It's a token or a, a sign of the partnership that we have with God, God and humanity. God says, within this covenant, God says, listen, by resting in faithful trust with me, you're keeping your side of the bargain. And if you rest in me by faith, I will sanctify you and make you perfect so that you can live in heaven with me. It's a covenant of friendship, of course, with the goal of ultimately being reunited with him in heaven. Now, Revelation 13 emphasizes the central importance of the Sabbath in last day events. It speaks about those who insist on keeping the law of God at the end of time, and in particular, the seventh day Sabbath. They will experience persecution, and for some people, death. Sabbath keepers will be killed for keeping this covenant of friendship, the Sabbath. They choose to keep this covenant of friendship, the Sabbath, rather, they choose to keep this covenant and be killed rather than live essentially. And so what we see from the Sabbath day that it's so much more than just a day, it's a covenant of friendship, it's a promise, it's a sign and a marker of our relationship between us and God. And to step out of that covenant or the Sabbath is stepping out of friendship with God. Think of it like this, a couple that no longer celebrates or acknowledges their anniversary is a sign that they're not really together anymore, that they don't reside together, they're not in covenantal friendship anymore. And the same is with the Sabbath day. And so as I was thinking about this and studying it, it kind of hit me. Am I willing to die for this covenantal friendship with God? I mean, first of all, I, I thought, am I willing to die for a day? Then when I look deeper, I ask my question, am I willing to die for this covenant of friendship, which is what this day, this whole day represents. And I'd encourage you to ask your same, yourself the same question. Because at the end of time, this will be the test of friendship. You know, the funny thing is, when we look at martyrs of old, the ones who were tortured and, and burnt with the flames, we look at them and how they stood up for truth. And we look at it from a very logical and heroic and in intellectual perspective. We look at it saying they really were convinced and convicted of the truth. And so, and so they died, you know, for that. But somehow we hope to become these martyrs, at least at the end of time too. Hopefully we will believe in the truth enough and know the truth enough in order to pass the test, right? But what I've realized is that we think that by doing enough and by knowing enough, we'll be able to survive the end of time. It's very much an intellectual exercise, or at least it was for me. 
do I know all of these doctrines? Can I give Bible study, studies on it? Um, do I, can I memorize these scriptures? All of these things, maybe if I know enough, then I'll be able to survive the end of time. But in reality, those martyrs were only willing to give up their lives and die because they loved truth and they loved the God of the truth. Ultimately, it was a friendship thing. Second Thessalonians chapter two, verse 10 says that at, the that at the end, the wicked will perish. And I quote, because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. When I saw that, I was blown away. I was trying to get ready for the end of time by knowing all of these things, by studying, by engaging my mind, which is an important thing to do. But the Bible says that at the end of time, what really matters is you loving the truth. It's you loving God. The truth is you cannot die for something you do not love. And so maybe surviving the end of time isn't so much about knowing stuff as it is about friendship, as it is about love. It's said again really eloquently in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. It says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Ultimately, it's not fear or knowledge or intellect that will get us to the end of time and hold us faithful. It's love. It's only love for Christ that can compel us to take the inconvenient route and lose everything for him. You only die for something that you love. Knowledge can take you only so far. But love, it will take you to the end of time, through the end of time and up into eternity. But the thing is, so many of us are living our lives, our Christian lives with God on the periphery. You see, history teaches us that religion is actually the best place to hide from God. In religion, you're close enough to God to say that you're a Christian, but you don't necessarily have to be as close at all. It's the best place to hide from God. And so my message is to lean in, to think that the very best way to prepare for this end time is to actually make God your friend. So simple. We talk about the mark of the beast, about all of these doctrines, the sanctuary message, righteousness by faith, and all of these things are incredibly important. But it gets to the point where we have to move from intellectual knowledge to heart knowledge, which will then manifest itself in us doing and being. Yes, make God your Lord. Yes, make God your master, but also make him your friend. And so we see that the Bible is replete with stories and parables and scriptures that testify of how God is willing to go above and beyond just for the possibility of being friends with us. And we also have seen that the Sabbath becomes a test of whether we want to reciprocate that friendship or not. And we've also seen from this message that only love and friendship will be enough to take us 
through to the end of time. And so as I conclude, I, I want to encourage you to learn to enjoy God. Don't just stop at forgiveness. Don't just stop at justification and sanctification. The relentless pursuit of the Christian is to lean ever closer into the heart of God. It's ever nearer into his presence. It is a ceaseless approaching into him. You see, friendship with God is the prize. It's the end and it's the beginning. It's the ever unraveling of knowing him more and all over again. You know, spouses often say, after 10 or 20 years of being married to this person, I'm still learning my husband, I'm still learning my wife. And so what more with God? And so over to you, have you settled for a surface level friendship with God? Are you drowning in superficial waters? Do people around you talk about the joy of being a Christian and contentment with, of walking with Christ? And you're like, I don't even know what that is. If you look honestly within your heart, people told you about how joyful the walk of being a Christian would be, but you're just finding it hard and you're finding it joyless. If that is your story, let me share with you a story that actually might help. So in this story, a couple had been saving for their honeymoon to Bali for the longest time. They were a modest couple, they didn't earn too much, but they really wanted to splash out because they saw their honeymoon as a trip of a lifetime. So they saved and saved and saved. And finally, the day arrived when it was time to start their honeymoon. And so they flew over to Bali and arrived at their honeymoon suite. As they opened the door, they saw that it was gorgeous. It boasted a huge fluffy bed, stunning decor and a luxury bathroom. They loved it, it was wonderful. So they would go out on adventures during the day and then come back at night and really enjoy and relax in their honeymoon suite. Now on the last day of their holiday, just before checkout, the, whole the hotel butler came in just to get some feedback of their experiences of their hotel stay. And so when he, when, they asked, when he asked them about their stay, they said, it was lovely, um, but probably a bit too pricey for what it was. Um, it was really nice though, but we just expected a little bit more um, for how much we paid, but still a really nice experience, no complaints. When the hotel butler heard that, he was really sad. And he, and he asked them, so you weren't wowed by the infinity pool? The couple looked at each other and then looked up back at the butler and asked, what infinity pool? What do you mean? The butler then took them to the corner of the room near the shelves and he opened a door. And it's crazy because they hadn't seen that door up until now. It was just in the corner and they hadn't recognized that it was a door. And so he opened the door and they stepped into a huge spacious lounge. There was a cinema room, a balcony garden, and an infinity pool with a hot tub. And the butler said to them, you mean to tell me that you didn't open the door? You spent two weeks here and you didn't open the door. 
you spent the whole of your honeymoon in the bedroom lobby. The couple were absolutely crushed. How many of us signed up to this Christian walk and have expected the best just like this honeymooned couple and settled for an okay experience? How, how many of us are walking this Christian journey and we're disappointed, we're heartbroken, we feel alone, we feel persecuted and we're thinking, this didn't really meet my expectations or my hopes. How many of us are living it up in the living room when God has given us the whole house? Beloved, do not spend your whole life living in the lobby. The Christian experience, this friendship with God is amazing, but only if you open the door and do the thing properly. So many of us get by on the periphery of Christianity, Sabbaths, a devotion here or there, prayer time here or there. But the truth is that's good, but it's living in the lobby. It's only the first room of what God has planned for us. The truth is if we dig deeper, if we fully engage with Christ and step into full covenantial friendship with him, we can have the whole parlor, the infinity pool, the hot tub, the luxurious lounge, but lots of us don't even know that it's there. We're living in the lobby like this is the Christian life. This is where it starts, this is where it ends. Let me just compromise with this. And so my message to you today is to dig deeper, to taste and see. I can testify. After all of the maddening experiences I've had in life, I'm still here as a Christian. And why is that? Because it's sweet. Because despite the hardships I've tasted and I've seen that God is worth it. And his friendship is pleasurable, the best thing. But you will never know that unless you open the door and go deeper. You will never know that unless you taste and see. And I'm talking about really tasting, letting the flavors in your mouth and the flavors of Christianity really sink deep, tasting them. Because a lot of us have a bite here and a bite there, but we're not here for the whole meal. We haven't sacrificed for the whole thing. And you know, I recognize that sometimes getting to know Christ on a deeper level it's just like spending time with an extended member of family or an in-law that you're related to, but you never really knew. Somebody who's familiar, but who's also a stranger. It might be a little awkward at first. You might want to bail out after 30 minutes, but friendships are never built in a day. This deeper experience doesn't come in a day. Actually, sometimes it takes a lot of work to build a relationship with God. It's, it's funny because we look at our walk with God and our friendship with God as almost automatic. Like, 
I'm baptized, I say yes to Jesus, and then everything is fine. But just like a normal relationship or friendship, it takes work. We have to put in the effort. I remember when I started off my Christian journey and I wanted to be more intentional about my relationship with God. So what I would literally do is I would take the timer on my phone, pop in 15 minutes, and I would force myself to pray for 15 minutes. And I know that seems a bit regimented, like how can you fall in love in such a regimented way? But the truth is love and friendships are built. If we know that marriage and friendships and love take time, then why aren't we willing to put in that energy and that effort with God? Something that will impact the rest of our eternity and somebody who has been so desperate for our friendship. And so that's my challenge to you. Even if this friendship or this relationship with God doesn't seem like it comes easy to push forward, to put in the work, to, put, to switch on that prayer timer, to give yourself a book challenge. And I promise you, it might be difficult or hard at first, but I promise you, if you put in enough time, if you give yourself enough space to fall in love with Christ, he will fulfill you and you will come out of living in the lobby and into the beautiful parlor of a friendship with God that it is enough to want to die for. And so in summary, we've seen that the, the Bible is replete with stories and parables and scriptures that testify that God is willing to go above and beyond just for the possibility of being friends with us. We've seen that the Sabbath comes as a test of whether we want to reciprocate the friendship of God. We've seen that at the end of time, only love and friendship will be enough to get us through that time because you only die for what you love. You only sacrifice for what you love. And finally, we've reflected on the Christian experience and sometimes us having a disappointed or saddening, joyless experience. We've reminded ourselves that there is so much more if we decide to show up, put in the work. I promise God will more than match and meet you. And so the question I have for you, beloved, today is are you willing to put in the work for friendship with Christ. The truth is he would travel worlds for you. In fact, he already did. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, if I could make up the concept of a God in my mind, it could never be as great and as awesome as you. You are more than I could ever hope for and dream for. Lord, you are thirsty for us and you're willing to sacrifice anything and everything in order to be in relationship with us. Father God, I want to pray for those who are struggling with their Christian walk, who don't understand how pursued they are, who don't understand how loved they are. I want to ask that you will connect them with you, Lord, because you've always been here waiting for them. 
I want to pray for the people who are stressed about the end of time, who are thinking, how will I be ready? I don't even know enough. I don't know how I'm going to make it. I pray that you calm their hearts and that you remind them that relationship and friendship and leaning into you is a thing that will help them get ready for the end of time. So simple, God, but so profound. May this be our experience, Father God. Thank you for loving us and thank you for being desperate for our friendship. Such a privilege. In Jesus' name I've prayed. Amen.